There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did you know that you can explore the foundations of classical education with a dynamic online community? A one-year program, the Circe Atrium explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five courses. Participants can choose one course or any combination. These courses include Heidi White on classical pedagogy, Andrew Kern on classical rhetoric, Matt Bianco on Plato's Republic, and Wes Callahan on the Divine Comedy or the Iliad. Through exclusive live webinars and online discussion, the Atrium offers a forum for contemplation and collaboration, a place to linger and take pleasure in the depths of the Christian classical tradition alongside like-minded fellow educators. We provide the platform. You bring the desire for wisdom and virtue. Together, we make the community. To learn more, head over to circeinstitute.com atrium. Welcome back to the Way to Fatherhood podcast. This is your host, Brian Phillips. Thank you for joining me for another episode. In this season, the overall focus is on dads and the women in our lives. That is our wives and daughters, of course. And any honest father would admit that we need a lot of help to be what we ought to be for our wives and our daughters. And that help, of course, ultimately comes from the Lord, but he also gives us the church and our family, our friends and role models to guide us as well. But one source of help that uh, we could easily overlook comes in the form of stories. And so joining me today to discuss the power of stories is Christine Cohen, author of The Winter King and hopefully many more books to come. So Christine, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. My family and I just finished listening to the, the audio version of The Winter King and loved it. So thank you for that. It came out in uh, late 2019, back when the world was somewhat normal. Um, yeah. Or, well, maybe it wasn't. It just felt a little bit more normal to us. <laughs> and the book's been very successful so far as a finalist for the 2020 Christie Award for Young Adults Books. It's garnered very high praise from Nate Wilson, who's one of our favorite writers in our household anyway. 
and my family loved it. So this was your debut novel. So what yeah. what is it like to have that kind of reception right out of the gate? Yeah, well, I I mean, it's been really encouraging, of course, because I started seriously writing probably 10 years ago. And there were so many ups and downs in the last 10 years. I signed with a New York agent for a while. We failed to sell my book in New York. Uh, I ended up firing my agent. I wrote and threw out a couple other books. Uh, you know, so you can start to doubt yourself and whether this is what God wants you to be doing with your time. You know, I during the last 10 years, we've had my husband and I have had three kids and I have to devote a lot of time to writing. And so I, I had conversations with my husband about like, is this, should I keep trying? Should I, uh, should I give this up? Is this not what I'm supposed to be doing? So it was really encouraging, uh, to have it be received so well, uh, when I wrote it and even up to the point when it was published with Canon, I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I guess I didn't, I didn't know if anyone outside of my friend group would read it or maybe friends of friends, or, uh, you know, maybe my aunts would recommend it to their friends to buy for their nieces, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> I've really been thrilled to see it, it making the rounds and getting out there. And, and every time I get a letter or a social media message or something telling me that they liked my book, it's, it's like Christmas. I just am so thankful for that. And, uh, and part of, I think the thing too, is that when you write a novel or any book, I would imagine, uh, by the time you turn it into your editor and you wash your hands of it, you're so sick of it. Right. <laughs> like I just, I, it no longer holds any surprise. I knew all the twists and turns and I just assumed that everyone else would see them coming too. So I, I, I just sort of thought, well, here you go. I'm sorry world. Um, and then it, it started spreading and, and getting out there and, um, and what's so neat about it too, is that when people love a story, they, recommend it to other people. And so that, that organic word of mouth spread is really, is really fantastic. I'm, I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. And of course, I mean, writing is hard, you know, so <laughs> yes. by the time you're done and I don't, I don't know that it matters whether it's a, a novel, a, a, you know, fiction or nonfiction or by the time you're done, you just, all right, I hate this, you know, or yes. I'm tired of dealing with this, you know, take it off my hands. I don't, <laughs> I don't yeah, that was really, that was really how I felt was I, I thought, well, I've done the best I can. I don't love it anymore. Here you go. <laughs> I think I'm glad that you said that too, because I don't know if anyone listening, um, you know, has had that experience or if you're interested in writing or your children are interested in writing, but that is, that's a very valuable lesson is that I think people like the idea of having written a book. Yes. Which is very different from enjoying writing a book. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's very hard work. In fact, I think it was, was Nate Wilson that I heard say once that writer is still one of the most sought after desired careers and has been for a long time. But the thing that you have to do to separate yourself from 99% of those people is to actually write something. Yes. Um, you know, and finish it because that's, that is a, a big test. It's, it's yeah. hard. So, I think there's like this, I think there's a honeymoon stage that you go through when you start writing a novel. So you get this idea or concept in your head of what you want to write and it looks really beautiful up there. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to put words on the page, it starts to come out like 
you know, your kid's idea of what an elephant looks like versus, you know, a national geographic shot of what an elephant looks like. And then, and, and a lot of people get to chapter three or four and they start to despair because they think, oh, this is, this is not at all what I envisioned. And you really do have to work past that mentally and just think I'm going to write this terribly first so that I can go back and make it better and make it look like the elephant I, you know, envisioned originally. But that is, uh, and there's also this idea that writing should be fun, which yes, it, it is a lot of fun a lot of the time, but it is still my job. And so that means there are days when I sit down and I don't want to write and I do it anyway, because it's my job. And, and that is something that I think a lot of people also don't realize is like, it's not like I sit down and I'm like, I can't wait to write every single day. You, you really do have to put in the steps and the motions. Yeah. Well, so I, I want to talk a little bit about that, the process for you and how the story came about. But but in case people are not familiar with with the book, with The Winter King, and I know you've been asked to do this countless times, and you've already admitted that that you're sick of the book, you hate it, you're just glad it's done. You know. um, but, but give us give us sort of a um, the Reader's Digest version. Tell us about the book. Um Obviously, I know you don't want to spoil it, but tell us about The Winter King. Yeah. Well, and I should make the caveat that I don't hate it anymore. It was a brief (laughs) moment as I passed it along to my editor that I thought this is the worst novel in the history of novels. And then once you start getting the positive feedback, you sort of you're able to to step back more objectively and be like, okay, now now I like my story. But um, yeah, so The Winter King, what's funny actually about this book compared to I've written books since then which I can really easily encapsulate in like an elevator pitch, but I really struggle with giving a pitch for the winter King. And I think part of that is because the book revolves around a mystery. So it is hard to describe it uh, without spoilers, but um, the book is set in a remote Viking era, Scandinavian village that's ruled by a tyrannical God King who takes human form every year for a few months and curses the village with a harsh winter. And the main character is a girl named Cora who lives on the outskirts of the village. Uh, She lost her father at a young age. She's the oldest of the children. And so she's trying to keep her family from starvation. So she takes on work in the house of the Winter King's high priest. Uh, She takes on extra work there. And while she's working there, she starts to uncover secrets about the village that have been hidden from the people and that could change her fortunes and those of everyone around her if she can manage to stay alive long enough to tell them. So that's that's sort of, um, I think a lot of that is me borrowing from the back jacket blurb, <laughs> but that's that's to me feels like reading the lyrics to a song without knowing the tune, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's always layers to what a story is about. So... Um, and this novel in particular, I think is much less about the plot level and more about the truths that are underneath that, that I'm trying to get at. So when I sign a book for Canon Press, uh, what I write inside of it, along with my signature is I write, there's truth in the old myths. And one way I would describe the winter King is that it's a myth retold. It's an exploration of the myth of Hades and Persephone in a Nordic world and in a specifically Christ-haunted world. So this village is operating under a false uh, 
warped, twisted religion. But at the center of that lie, there is still truth. And I'm trying to get at in my story what that truth is buried within the layers of myth. Yeah. And and we got the sense of that in, in reading it together. It, it raised a lot of big questions. A lot of great conversation was started around the breakfast table in our home. You know, uh, as we would finish a chapter, it was always, no, 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 we, we have to keep going. What's going to happen next? You know, and not just in regard to the plot line, but in, in regarding, you know, how do we resolve these questions that are being raised? And so um, that was that was a fascinating aspect of the book. And so I'm, I'm curious as to how the story came about. As you said, sometimes when you describe, and I guess this could happen in a lot of different forms, whether it's a, a novel or a, a movie or, or whatever, when you describe a plot line, you think, well, when I say it out loud, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't really convey what it actually is. But um, I'm curious as to how the process of this story started, but, but bigger than that, how you developed uh, wanting to be a writer. How did this come about? So did, did you always want to be a writer? So you were already developing stories or did this particular story develop and then you decided to, to write it? Yeah. Sort of uh, like the muse, you know. <laughs> <laughs> how does the muse hit? Right. Um, I have always wanted to be a writer. I wrote my first short story, I think when I was in fourth grade, I still have it. It's, I read it to my kids. Occasionally they get a kick out of it. And I think though, for a short amount of time, I forgot that I wanted to be a writer when I was in college and I was churning out, you know, term papers when I was a teenager. And I don't think I realized at the time that this was not what other teenagers were doing, but I would sit in my room through the summers and write these epic trilogies. Um, They were always really derivative, like Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. type trilogies. And so I, I, I did that all through high school. And then after I graduated college and got married and had my first baby, and then she was taking two, two hour naps a day. And that was kind of when I, we lived in this really small apartment and I was homebound and I looked around and thought, well, what am I going to do with my time? I, I need to redeem it somehow. Right. Like, do I, should I take up knitting or sewing or what? And I, and that was kind of when I remembered how much I loved writing as a teenager. And so I just thought, well, I'll write a novel. (laughs) So I had an idea at the time and I don't remember how it came to me, but, um, I had an idea for a fairy tale that I wrote and it was awful. Um, but I wrote it and I learned from writing it that I could finish a novel, which was huge at the time for me. That was like a skill that I needed to master, you know, getting from point A to point B. And then I, I wrote a second novel, uh, after my second child was born this was my theme was like children napping. I go, right. And that, um, and that novel was also awful, but I learned with, <laughs> I learned with that one, how to convey atmosphere and tone and use it to affect. So this, the second novel, which Lord willing will never see the light of day. 
I wrote this story about Cain and the idea of how he was sent to roam the earth. And I thought, well, what if he was like eternally roaming the earth? I didn't really think about the theology of this too much, but like if his soul was sort of swapping bodies, you know, through the centuries. And um, so it was kind of a horror story and it was really bizarre and moody, but I thought, oh, I'll set it in it's like a small town Americana at Halloween. And, um, and that worked really well, yeah. except that the story itself was terrible. Like the characters <laughs> were cardboard cutouts and the dialogue was awful. And, but I learned how to, um, how to capture mood in a story, which was huge right. to me. So I learned some really great lessons with both of those, those novels and I threw them away. And then um, what always happens to me is I just, if I go long enough, it's like an itch that I have to scratch. And I started thinking, okay, I need to write something else. I'm getting, I'm getting that itch. I was um, pregnant with my third child and I got, I started getting the ideas for the Winter Kings. So I found that the way my creative process works is that I get these ideas kind of in bits and pieces and I have to I have to be careful not to scare them. So I try not to look directly at this, <laughs> these ideas as they come into my mind. And I sort of just let them simmer in, in the back of my head. But it's sort of like uh, holding balloons for me. I have to collect a certain amount of balloons before I can take off with the story. And so what happened was I had recently reread Till We Have Faces. And um, if you, if your listeners have read it, if you've read it, you'll know that that one's like huge on the mood level. Like it, it feels just very dark and heavy. And, um, and I loved that. And so I thought I want to write that. It feels like a myth, like the sort of old myths. And of course that's what Lewis was trying to do with that story. So I knew I wanted to do something like that. And then the next thing that happened was I was thinking about the phrase winter is coming. And I was thinking about how neat that would be if that thing winter was a person if the idea of winter coming was a fear that collectively people had because someone was coming to, um, to curse them with winter. And originally I had thought of it sort of more like a white, witch, uh, a female antagonist, um, but that switch along the way. So then I started shuffling through in my mind, the different myths that, um, that are seasonal that are dealing specifically with seasons. And that was how I ended up with Hades and Persephone and the idea of whenever Persephone is stolen, then her mother curses the ground with winter. And that is how, you know, we get the seasons. And so, um, once I had those ideas and I knew I wanted a female protagonist and I knew I wanted her to be the one who is uncovering secrets, that was really when I finally had enough balloons that I could take off. And at the time I'd heard about um, something called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. It takes place in November. It's an online writing community um, and you can be as plugged into it as you want, but basically you just commit to writing a novel in one month. And I guess I thought to myself, I have three small children. Why not do that? Uh, so, so I did, I sat down and I, um, I pounded it out. It only, when I first wrote it, I think it was only about 40, 45,000 words. Um, and I, I think it in the final form, it's more like 60, 65. So it was really a skeletal first draft. But after I wrote that and I sent it to my mom and a couple other beta readers and, and they were like, okay, yes, they had stuck with me through my previous terrible attempts at writing novels. And this was the first one that everyone was like, all right, you can, you should keep going with this one. So, so that was kind of how it, it came about. Well, now you mentioned um, a little bit about 
Tolkien and the derivative trilogies that you invite as a teenager. And then, of course, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. But what other literary influences have you had? Who Do you have favorite writers that have sort of affected your own your own approach to writing or your style? Yeah, um, I also around the time I think that I was reading Lewis or particularly Till We Have Faces, I also got into uh, Megan Whalen Turner. Her um, she wrote the Thief series, okay. and I loved again the mood in that series and the way that it felt like a world that was almost ours, but with it was like one step away. So there's there are still like the pagan gods in her story, but it, it still feels like a sort of Western mythological setting. And um, in addition, as a teen, I loved I loved Diana Wynne Jones. Because uh, so she's she's written prodigiously, but even though she wasn't a Christian, she mm-hmm. sat under Lewis and Tolkien uh, in college. So she just couldn't help but sound Christian in her stories. Like, I don't think she meant to, but it just seeped out anyway. Um, So, I I mean, she wrote one of her books. uh, I think it's called Fire and Hemlock. Uh, She wrote using the structure of T.S. Eliot's four quartets as like the the skeleton for the the book. So she's she's absolutely brilliant. Um, And what I loved about her stories is, again, she had these um, spunky female protagonists. She had these worlds that felt almost like ours, but with um, almost as if the magic had just sort of seeped up from below ground a little bit more. I loved that about her. Uh, I read um, Terry Pratchett a lot, his Tiffany Aching series in particular from Discworld. Again, because I'd found a female character that, uh, you know, teen Christine just loved and enjoyed. And um, and then I, I also loved Lloyd Alexander. I read through the, you know, his Perdane trilogy many times. And the, I loved the, the Welsh mythology of that book. And particularly I loved Island Wee because again, I could, I could relate to her. So, so those were kind of the, the, when I was thinking about novels for kids, those were the ones that I loved and that I wanted to write kind of in the, in the vein of, and then here's my plug for new St. Andrews college where I went. I, (laughs) I read so much when I was there, which I think is hugely helpful for any writer, because if you want to write interesting things, you need to know a lot about a lot of different, mm-hmm. you know, genres and, right. and topics. And I took a class from uh, Douglas Wilson on Rene Girard and his idea of the scapegoat. And I found that so fascinating. And so um, in particular, he talks about the way cultures use scapegoats and the way that that the ancient cultures would, you know, be looking for someone to expiate their sins, to get them out of whatever drought or plague or whatever had, had taken over the village and, and how often that, that scapegoat would then turn into a hero. You know, they, that would become like one of their, their Hercules or, or whatever. And I remember I was so fascinated with the idea of that herd mentality and um, and whole villages kind of being sucked into a lie together and going along with these steps together. And so I, I wanted to explore that also in the Winter King. So you see that with the village and the way that they they willingly will accept something even as awful as human sacrifice because because of this mythos that they have. And more recently, I, I'm a big fan of Leif Enger. I will read anything he writes, um, because he's a really a master on the prose level. And, um, 
And I love Marilyn Robinson for her characters and how realistic they are. So I try to, I try to read outside of just children's fiction as well. (laughs) Well, you've mentioned a good bit about female protagonists. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, my wife and I have two daughters. And one of the things I noticed as we all went through the winter King together was the effect that the story had on, on them they, you know, they love great stories, but um, our girls were were particularly hooked with the Winter King. And I, I tend to think it was the simple fact that the main character, simple but uh, but significant fact that uh, that Cora was the main protagonist. So why do you think it's it's important to have these these strong female protagonists in stories? Hmm. Yeah, well, despite the fact that I've used the phrase strong female protagonist multiple times since talking to you, um, I, there's like a, I do kind of shy away from it in terms of when I describe the winter King only because there isn't really a reciprocal, right? We don't talk about books with strong male protagonists. And, and so when people use that phrase, I think they often have a specific agenda attached to it that I don't want attached to my books, if that makes sense. But I do think that as the children's fiction genre has grown since um, really since the explosion of the Harry Potter series, uh, that sort of carved out this space for best-selling middle grade and young adult books. Uh, there have been an awful lot of good books with boys as the main characters or animals as the main characters. Um, but having girls get those same great character arcs great adventure stories that's been slower to come. And I do agree. I think that it's, it's very important uh, as evidenced by how much I searched through literature as a, as a teen for those types of books. And I do think that it's changed recently, but unfortunately in the, in the young adult genre, particularly it's changed to being what we might call the strong female protagonist trope, where it's Mm. the woman brandishing the swords doing everything the man can do only better. The men are usually marshmallow props. It's like really unrealistic and it's just not that enjoyable to read. So it's gotten really grim dark in that young adult category for girls. And obviously that's not what I wanted um, to write, but I think that, I mean, if we look at scripture, we have this amazing and diverse cast of women in the Bible who are having adventures, who are the protagonists in the story. You have Ruth and Esther and Sarah. And as a Christian mother, I should be pointing my daughters to these women. And one of the lines I think about a lot in scripture is uh, in first Peter, when he says, this is, this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves submitting to their husbands like Sarah, who called Abraham Lord and whose daughters you are, if you do what is right and you don't give way to fear. And I think that that's so important, particularly for, for women, for girls is like, there are many ways that we can give in to fear and we're called not, not to do that. And I want to find books for my girls and write books with female characters who are brave. And so, uh, you know, we don't, I don't necessarily want to say like, buy my book because it has a strong female character. I hope people want to read it because it's a book that glorifies God where the characters are, are brave, or if they're not brave at the beginning, hopefully they learn to be brave by the end. You know, they're going to be 
I want them to be well-rounded, three-dimensional, active protagonists like the women in the Bible who make mistakes and learn from them and have these character arcs. So now you have a, you have another book coming, right? Yes. Will it be a continuation? I, I know that my kids would want me to ask this. Is, is it going to be a continuation of the Winter King? Do we get more time with Cora? So, okay, what can you tell us? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I do have another one coming out. I do feel bad because I get this a lot. And unfortunately, it is not a sequel to the Winter Kings. So for right now, at least, I, I feel like I closed the door on that particular chapter with Cora and Peter and everyone. But I don't, I maybe down the road, I will feel the need to write another story in that world. I don't ever really want to leave it because despite how bleak it was at the start, it it really is a world that I enjoyed creating. And so, so possibly down the road, I will get an idea for it. But this next one is, it's a pretty big jump in terms of the feel of it, I think. So instead of, it's not so much a myth. And I feel like many readers will be <laughs> pleased to know that it is not quite as heavy initially, at least as the Winter King was. So I know that I was asking a lot of my readers with the Winter King in terms of, you know, stick with me. There's things are going to get lighter and there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, this one, I wanted to feel more like a fairy tale. So it has more magic in it that feels kind of like a throwaway. It's not, um, it doesn't have that same sort of untouchable feel that the magic in the winter King has, but it's still just one step removed from our world. So for this one, the balloons I was working with to go back to that analogy, um, I was thinking of Jonathan strange and Mr. Norell, which is a fantastic. What'd you say? I said, yes. Yes. I I love that book. (laughs) <laughs> oh, good. So usually when I, when I throw that, that book out there, I either get the blank stares or I get people who are like, I loved it. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. So I read it a couple of years ago and I thought that I want to write that for, mm. uh, the young adult genre. So I knew I wanted to write that. I was working off of, um, 12th night is one of my favorite of the Shakespearean plays. I love the girl just disguised as a boy, uh, idea. And so I wanted to work with that. Mm -hmm. And then I, I wanted to find a setting. And so, uh, I ended up with Venice, which I'm thrilled that I (laughs) stumbled upon that because there's just so many themes you can play with, with Venice, you know, there's the water and the moon and the idea of lunacy and things not being as they seem, which again, plays into 12th night. So, so for this one, this is an easier elevator pitch for me. Uh, It's the story of a girl who on her 16th birthday uh, and for reasons I will keep secret for now, runs away from her life of ballrooms and ball gowns and disguises herself as a boy and becomes the apprentice of the most infamous magician in Venice. So that's, that is the, the quick pitch for it. It's, it's a lot of fun. I really, I enjoyed it. It feels when I think of how it feels, it's a lot more colorful than the winter King. Mm. And it, it is just very, very different, but hopefully still something that, that people will enjoy. That's great. Uh, Looking forward to it. And I hope that the enjoyment continues further in this one so that when you hand it off, you're, 
<laughs> right? Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe when I get to the end, but, you know what it is? It's the line edits that kill me. When I get to the point where I'm debating between words in a particular paragraph and whether to switch them, it's like staring at, you know, at something for too long when your eyes just start to cross and you're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't care. I washed my hands of it. So I haven't done the line edits yet for this next book. So <laughs> okay. we'll see. Well, um, you'll make it through. You'll make it through. We're yes. looking forward to it. Now, um, we have to note before leaving, of course, that The Winter King is available from Canon Press uh, and anywhere else that you buy good books. Um, and it's also available as an audiobook from Audible. So make sure and get a copy of that. And then uh, keep your eyes open for the next book by Christine Cohen. Christine, thanks so much for joining me on this episode. It's been wonderful talking with you about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of The Way to Fatherhood. Until next time, I'm your host, Brian Phillips, signing off, and we'll talk to you again soon. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.